Welcome to The Well, a podcast for mindful drinking. In this episode, we focus on the topic of home bartending, which is no doubt on the rise during this pandemic. Our guest, Dave Stolte, is not only an expert on home bartending, he has also written a book on the topic entitled Home Bar Basics and Not So Basics. He joins us now to share some tips and to provide a roadmap for all aspiring home bartenders. Mr. Dave Stolte, welcome to the show. You obviously know a lot about home bartending, but uh, tell us about yourself and tell us what you got going on. Well, uh, for those who don't know me, I am a career designer. I've always worked in design going back to high school with my first gig. But along the, the same track, I have always had an interest in mixed drinks, like even going back to high school, I might have had a fake ID. And I might have been um, not interested in beer, not interested in wine, but that fucking Everclear punch in the trash can really did it for me. <laughs> I've always had an interest in, in mixed drinks. And when my wife and I were first married and raising our family, you know, we were broke as a joke and could not afford to go eating out or going to bars. This would have been in the you know early 90s. And there wouldn't have been any great bars to go to anyway. But we learned to make drinks at home as a part of our, you know, making dinner or, hey, the kids have gone to bed. Let's relax and, you know, have a little nightcap together. So that that kind of became part of our life. And um, through that and through, uh, through my design and my illustration, all of those worlds eventually merged when a friend of mine um, asked me for help with his home bar. And he uh, sent me a picture of his little cabinet over the refrigerator. And there was like a roses lime juice that was kind of brown <laughs> and a bottle of Jack Daniels and I think a bottle of Malibu. And he was like, what, I, I want to make a drink. What can I do with this? And I said, well, you can get a... Um, you throw it in the trash. <laughs> so I, I wound up right, like you know, with the intent of just writing him back an email of like, okay, well, here's like, if you're actually interested in making drinks, here's the basics of what you need to know. And it wound up being like three or four pages. And he wrote me back and said, hey, that's really awesome. You should think about doing a book. I was like, oh, well, yeah, I, I can probably write it. I can design it. I can illustrate it. And I might be able to speak with some personal experience about the drinks. But I knew that I would, you know, I'm not a professional bartender. I've done events. I've done seminars and sessions and, you know, blah, blah. But I'm not a bartender. I'm Dave. When did you feel, uh, you know, confident enough in, in your home bartending that you decided to actually start publishing things, which is what you're doing now, right? You have a, you have a book coming out, right? Yeah. Well, this is this will be the third edition. The the first and the the second editions were were very very similar. There were just some minor tweaks and some extra recipes, but those are back in 2011 and 2013. Yeah, I have. I think the first edition, um, but this one, my understanding is you got a Kickstarter going on. Maybe you know. Maybe you should plug yourself because this is going to be a little bit more substantial. Way more substantial. I'm not the same person I was uh, almost 10 years ago. You know, I've, I haven't stopped learning and questioning everything that I think I know. When I first was writing the, the first edition, I knew that I couldn't put it out there on my own without checking my work. So I had a friend in uh, Paul Harrington 
who used to have a, a website at uh, Wired Magazine back in the 90s. And he, on the, on the East Coast, was in, a, in, a, in his own way a contemporary of Dale DeGroff. Uh, Paul was in the Bay Area. Uh, he was a student of architecture, but he was also a student of history and was digging out these old um, cocktail books from the 19th century the same way that, that Dale DeGroff did. So I was following his website. I learned everything from that and, of course, you know, filtered through my own lens. But then when it came time to write the first book, I was able to send a draft of it up to Paul for his thoughts. And at that time, it also made a connection to Eric Alperin, who was very kind. And uh, both of them marked up my draft with a red pencil and said, you know, think about this or that or adjust this spec a little bit or, you know, 86 that product, try this instead. So it's, it's just really been through the process of going out to all the great bars in mostly in Southern California, but uh, elsewhere around the country and trying not to be an asshole, but asking questions and observing and making connections and just being a human being and talking to people. So the name of the book is still Home Bar Basics, right? And not so basics. And not so basics. And it's coming out pretty soon. Um, the Kickstarter is still live, right? Kickstarter is still live. Um, you know, it ain't over until it's over. The drop dead, as far as time goes, is November 14th. And we are, you know, a, a little under a month from there. But thankfully, uh, as uh, as we're recording this, we're at 75% funded. So I feel like we're in the home stretch, but I'm, I'm not going to sit back and say it's going to for sure happen because it's, it's all or nothing. Yeah. And I have one of your earlier editions and, uh, you know, I have a lot of cocktail books. But what I like about yours, it does a great job of bridging the gap for people who truly would would use these cocktail books, right? A lot of home uh, people who want to make drinks at home. You know, bartenders, we we like our cocktail books as well, but a lot of them, you know, they speak over the heads of uh, of your, you know, your your kind of -of run-of-the-mill regular home, someone who wants to make drinks at home. And you bridge that gap perfectly because you are that you're speaking you are your audience exactly yeah i've had that experience right before i wrote the first edition of the book i was in a barbecue restaurant with my wife and ordered an old-fashioned like now you'd get something back that looks like an old-fashioned right i watch this bartender across the room and he's like you know talking with his buddy behind the bar and they're like you know pulling out the compendium and like you know and so they they get the blender and (laughs) and some ice and, he, you know, he pours in some whiskey and then he pours in like, you know, one, two drops of Angostura, you know, throws in a couple sugar cubes, a couple orange wheels, a couple cherries out of the garnish tray and fucking blends that thing. <laughs> it just kind of goes to show you the world that we were in, you know, nine, ten short years ago. That's how recent that was. Yeah. It's not that long ago. I mean, um, it, it's just... Uh, crazy to think how far we've pushed it but as far as like the books go there's some really amazing books out there that are kind of documenting this world and and this moment and we're in a new golden year of of cocktails and i think it's it's vital that those books exist but like you said Pamon, at the same time they go over the heads of the average person who might be weaning themselves off of sour mix and you know marshmallow vodka or whatever and they just want to make a simple enjoyable drink without maybe the interest of going that much deeper into it so i want to i want to be able to reach out to those people 
make them feel safe and comfortable and welcome in this world and let them find their own path, give them you know, enough information to get off the landing strip and fly. Before we go into the substantive topic of today's show, which is home bartending, I still want to like brag about you a little bit more because you do a lot of stuff and you're not just a designer. I mean, people don't know, but you, you've designed menus around Southern yeah. California. You are the designer of the logos for my, my restaurant project. You're doing those designs. You also do cool little, um, what should we call it? Cocktail personifications. Yeah, I do these little, you know, drawings of people like if you were a margarita, what would you look like? And <laughs> the first one that I did was actually um, Trevor Easter commissioned me to do Eric Castro for his birthday. These are bartenders. Yeah. For the listeners. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Castro was a Negroni and um, it just took off from there. But let's get into the topic for today, which is bartending at home. Yeah. How has the pandemic changed how or what you drink at home? In terms of quantity or? You know, do you do you drink less? Do you drink more? Do you drink differently? Honestly, the, the pandemic hasn't influenced the last um, six months of, of our home drinking as much as this, this book project has. It's like once we knew that it was happening... Now I'm going back and fact-checking everything. I'm testing all of these recipes. If I haven't made it in a while, I'm drinking it again to see if I still like it. So there's been an, a kind of an influx of bottles. And of course, as, as Jason Schiffer and I have been collaborating on the list of drinks that are going to be in the book, maybe there are some products that I didn't have on hand and all of a sudden I need to get or... I remembered a drink that I had with a friend one time, and you know, all of a sudden, I need a bottle of Stro 160. Now, for a novice bartender, what are some of the tools you recommend from a more budget end to a more expensive end of equipment? I think honestly, if you have if you have no money to spend, you can figure this out pretty well, and you can get very close to approximating you know professional tools. There's there's some nuances that will happen if you have really good tools, but honestly. Um, you can stir in a beer glass with a chopstick. Chopsticks is how I stir yeah. these days. At yeah, home. It's, it's, it's the easiest. What do you need a spoon on there for? Give me the stick. You can, if at home, you don't have this luxury in a bar, but at home you can fucking use your fingers to, to strain it. <laughs> right? Who cares? Um, yeah, you can use a you know a mason jar for a shaker. It's it's not going to be exactly the same. You can use your garbage ice that's coming out of the ice maker if um, if that's all you have. You just have to kind of understand what the what the purpose of ice is and what that kind of ice is doing to your drink. So you have to modify your you know how you do it a little bit. Um, you can use measuring cups instead of a jigger. So basically, the cost of entry is zero. The cost of entry is zero minus you know the bottles. Um, if you live in a place where there's citrus, you can go steal fruit off of someone's tree. <laughs> yeah, it's just the bottles. And cost does not necessarily equate quality in, in the same way that like you know uh, a 23-year whiskey is not necessarily better than a 12-year whiskey. It's, it all depends. There's some great brands that people, uh, I think, tend to d- dismiss and think of them as, as like bottom-shelf brands. Because they're so familiar and because they're a good value, like like Beefeater. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think when it comes to alcohol brands, you know, something we've discussed on this show before is is consumers 
have a perception that's largely driven by advertising and, and, and PR agencies of, of right. the brands themselves, you know. Is it because it's like a mainstream thing and people want something that's more esoteric? It's, uh, for me, it, beef eater is a standard that, you know, other gins are measured against. But Yeah, beef eater and tangerine are, you know, two desert island gins. Not, you know, I love the craft gins that are out there. Yeah. But, you know, you know, craft craft, craft is, is cuts differently, right? You know, sometimes 100 years of distilling knowledge um, means something. Exactly. There's there's the tradition versus the taking the tradition and putting a spin on it or decorating it or whatever this and you know that's the, the I think the mark of a true craftsman is to uh, kind of be of service to the product. Right on. So turning back to tools, say someone just insisted you gave them a list of things to start with. Sure. Maybe just as a motivational technique to get them to actually start home bartending. So the standards, um, as far as I'm concerned, uh, a two-piece mixing tin set rather than a, a cobbler shaker where the lid fits on and it has a strainer built in, which you, you regularly see at home. The, the two-piece mixing tin set is is what professional bartenders use. They're durable. They're just... Commonly known as Boston. Yeah, Boston tin, although um, I, don't, I don't do like the tin on glass. I do the tin on tin. Tin on tin, right. Right. If you're looking for a jigger, I think the the ones that everybody loves are the Japanese jiggers that are two ounce on one side and, and one ounce on the other. And then if you look in the interior, there's these little markings that show you ounce and a half or half ounce or three quarter or whatever. That's that's a core piece of your kit. A good mixing glass is important. Uh, it should be fairly dense glass. It should have straight sides and not tapered. Some people like to use a heavyweight Pyrex. Like they use that as the house mixing glass at um, Plight Provisions down in San Diego. It's a, um, a heavyweight Pyrex, like shatterproof glass. And it's got like the you know, scientific markings on the side. It looks like a beaker. It's, it's super cool. But there's also, uh, you know, these, these Japanese heavyweight glass mixing glasses. You need a good bar spoon that it feels smooth and elegant in your hand. That's easy to turn. If it has a calibrated spoon where the spoon is actually one teaspoon, that's gold, but you shouldn't expect it. Um, you should also have a set of measuring spoons for, you know, measuring a, a bar spoon is supposed to be a teaspoon. and But it rarely is. Yeah, exactly. So use a teaspoon if you're not sure. The Hawthorne strainer for uh, straining out shaken drinks uh, can do double duty for stirred drinks. Um, but uh, the julep strainer is uh, traditional and you know looks kind of cool. That's really kind of the the core kit. You know, I would throw in an electric blender, but I just you know fucking love frozen drinks in the summer. <laughs> that's why. Maybe that's why they threw the old fashioned in a blender because <laughs> they heard about you. Yeah, they, heard, they, they saw me coming. You know. <laughs> <laughs> and to big to piggyback off Dave's point, you can make a drink with you know the minimal tools, right? Bar tools are like are like automobiles. You can get from point A to point B in a Toyota Tercel or in a Mercedes. It's just a matter of what you want to look like in the process. You know, right. your mason jar and, and your chopsticks will get the job done at a minimum. But, you know, once you've graduated from college and you want to be a grown-up, it's time to, you know, have uniform uh, uniform glassware and, and, and <laughs> you know, and, and throw the plastic cups behind. So it's, it's really a matter of what your own, you know, what you're comfortable with and what you want to accomplish. Right. You know, when I'm drinking for myself, I still garnish my drinks, you know, like I was giving them to anyone else. Um, you know, maybe I'm funny in that way, but 
you know, maybe it's, it's, it's particular to the process of making drinks where you're, you're supposed to be having fun and you're doing something, you know, pleasurable to take the edge off or to transition from the workday to the evening or, you know, whatever your, your ritual is, it should be a pleasurable experience. And so the tools that you're using should feel pleasurable. You know, they should work for you. There should be no frustrations. They should feel good in your hand and, and give you the confidence to make good drinks. And they are just that. They're tools. They're the conduits to get you to the type of experience that you want. You know, some people want the the nice gold-plated, you know, bar spoons and Japanese jiggers and stuff that you could find on websites like umamimart.com or cocktailkingdom.com. Or you could have those same Japanese jiggers, but in just regular stainless steel. So the equipment doesn't make you a good bartender. No. It, well, I think, you know, what makes you a good bartender is... Um, having a, a kind of a base toolkit of information and then observing and being present and being thoughtful about what you're doing while you're doing it. So what are some essential non-alcoholic ingredients that people should keep stocked in their home bar? Specifically non-alcoholic? Yeah, we'll get to bottles and spirits later. Okay. So a um, hmm, couple different kinds of sugar. You're going to want white sugar and either a, a demerara or a, a turbinado sugar if you if you just can't find demerara locally. It's it's kind of an uncommon thing, but you can mail order it if you you know if you want to be real. About or you it. could just steal the sugar in the raw packets from your coffee shop. <laughs> that's turbinado, and that's good stuff. Uh, you're going to want access to good fruit. If you live in a place where you have access to a, a farmer's market or a, you know, a local farm stand, get your stuff seasonally. And it's, it's okay to drink seasonally, just like it's okay to drink, okay to eat seasonally. Like, you know, you want chili and pot roast in the winter and you, you want, you know, gazpacho when it's 110 outside. So you know, citrus comes and goes. Uh, certain things are seasonal. And I think also certain flavors lend themselves to um, seasonal drinking. And just listen to also what your body and your palate is telling you, right? I mean, if you if you tune into what you, what it is you actually your body wants, it'll 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 drive you to there anyways. And ninety nine percent of the time, that's going to be a Negroni. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, apart from the uh, you know the sugar and the the fruit, uh, as far as not like non alcoholic things, that's that's your core. If you have that stuff, then you have options. Like if I, if I don't have lemons, I like some lemon oil on top of the martini. So I can't make a martini. I mean, I can, but it's not going to be exactly the way I want it if I don't have that lemon oil. Of course, this is all predicated on what you like to drink. But if you like any kind of shaken drink, I think lemon or lime, at least one of the two should be in, the, in your fridge. I don't know if this is on your list or not, but honestly, for home bartenders, the Biggest, biggest, biggest problem to overcome is ice. That was actually my next question. How do you deal with ice? Because when I go out and drink at a bar versus what I make at home, the ice is the factor that I don't think I can duplicate quite as easily or accurately as what right. I can get at a bar. Yeah. It's often the most overlooked ingredient for home bartenders. It's crucial. That is crucial. Ice is one of those funny things where it's kind of halfway between a tool and an ingredient. It's the one thing that most home bartenders overlook and don't really have reasonable access to. Like if you if you care enough to try to emulate what the great bartenders 
professional bartenders are doing, if you're trying to emulate that at home, you have to step up your ice game and it's going to, it's going to take an effort. So there are, there are ways that you can make clear ice at home and it has nothing to do with boiling water or distilled water or any of that shit. There's this uh, writer up in San Francisco, Camper English, who has dedicated his life to figuring out how to make clear ice at home. <laughs> so he can speak to it much better than me, or you can just go to his website, alkademics.com. Following his experiments and his techniques, there have been some commercial products that have been made over the last, uh, I'd say, six or seven years. It, it all has to do with the speed of freezing and the direction that the water freezes in and what happens to all of those trapped, trapped air, trapped particulates, all that shit that winds up making your ice cloudy. And when your ice is cloudy, it falls apart quicker and it dilutes the drink to a greater extent than what you want. So the, the whole thing with, with getting quality ice is not just that it's beautiful because it is, and that's part of it, but that it's, it's going to give you the control that you need over the drink. If there's a local ice house, which is what I do, I go and buy a 25 pound block and I bring it home, I let it temper on the counter for about a half hour, and then I, I break it into smaller pieces and I store it in uh, Ziploc bags in the freezer. And explain why you have to let it temper, for those who don't know. Uh, if you do, if you try to cut ice right when it's like straight out of the freezer, it's super brittle and it's, it's going to shatter. And if you're trying to cut a straight line, it's going to wind up going this way or that way. It's, you, you can't control it. Tempering is, is the process of just letting it hang out and not melt, but start to get to that process where it's soft enough that when you cut, it makes a clean cut and it's a straight line. So you cut in cubes or is there a particular shape you go for? Yeah, I'll use a, like a, a rocks glass and I'll, I'll just keep one handy right next to me while I'm cutting. Jason Schiffer taught me this technique where if you take a, a sheet pan and you flip it upside down, so there's a little bit of bounce in it, put a dish towel on top of that and put your ice block on top of the dish towel. As you're doing your cuts, there's a little bit of bounce. And so that, that energy of that cut has somewhere to go instead of bouncing back up into the ice and shattering in a weird way. I would say for as far as you know, home bartenders who want to step up their ice game a little bit, um, you know, we can talk about it in, in a few tiers, right? Let's say tier one, you want to step up one level is just buy the Tovalo, you know, silicone molds, right? That's step one. If you want just like nice looking cubes, whatever shape you want, you can buy those molds. Um, and no, no matter what you do, no matter how crazy you go in your ice escapade or, or how simple you keep it, always use good quality water, filtered you know, filter tap water is fine, but when you filter, at least you filter out the other particulates that won't necessarily make it clear, but it'll remove just off tasting things because you're going to be yeah. mixing with this and whatever that ice smells and tastes like it's going to be imparted in your drink. So use your filtered water. Even if you just want to use a mold, use that filtered water. A step beyond that, if you want to go above using just a little mold, grab the largest size Tupperware that you have that your freezer can accommodate. Fill it with your filtered water, not all the way to the top because you need to leave some room because ice expands as it freezes. Put the top on it, put it in the freezer. Now you got a big block of ice and then you can follow what Dave said um, after it's frozen, after you know a day or two that it's completely frozen. You can flip it upside down, practice cutting it in the pieces and stuff that you want. That's, I think, level two. If you want to go to the next level of getting the clarity 
then that's just one more simple additional step. Um, you're going to need a freezer that can accommodate a uh, an igloo type of you know cooler, lunch cooler, a lunch cooler or something like that. Basically, you want something that's insulated on all sides except the top. So you can you leave the top off basically. When it's insulated on all sides, the water will freeze in such a way that the cloudiness, instead of the cloudiness focusing and congregating in the center of the frozen cube, it will form one layer at the very bottom. And that layer, once it's frozen, you can you can flip it off and you can just cut it off. And that cloudiness, all it is mainly is, is oxygen bubbles that are stuck in there. It's not dirtiness and stuff like that. If you filter your water, and then it won't be dirty. So if you took the top off a of Tupperware, could you create like a mini version of that? No, because it's got to be what the point is, is to have the insulation on the multiple sides. Oh, got it. Got it. The way ice freezes is if you don't have those multiple insulated sides, then the cloudiness is just going to appear randomly. If you have it insulated on all sides, then it's just going to congregate in the center. But if you have it insulated on all sides, except the top is open, then as it's freezing, the oxygen bubbles that get trapped, they're going to be trapped on one layer. And that layer, you can break it off after the ice has tempered. Okay. I, I used to have this thing that I did with the lunch cooler where I got the Tovalo um, trays for the one-inch cubes. And I in, in the bottom of each cube section, I poked like three little holes with a, a punch. And then I elevated those trays in the cooler so that as the water froze and all of that cloudiness, it went through those little holes and the cloudiness went underneath. And so I could just pop out these perfectly clear cubes. But it just f- felt a little obsessive. I, you know, I don't know if there's a way to not feel obsessive about ice. It's one of those things I struggle with. <laughs> but the, the other one also is, um, the, you know, the quick tip for petal ice, um, for like tiki drinks and juleps and, you know, all that fun stuff. Go to Sonic and they'll sell you a bag of ice. Or um, if you don't have a Sonic nearby, you can actually go into like an AM PM at the gas station where they have the crunch ice. And if you ask them, you say, hey, I want to buy a bag of ice from the, from the, you know, the soda machine. They'll look at you like, who the fuck are you? <laughs> but they'll do it, you know? And I used to do that all the time um, because I didn't have a Sonic nearby. And so I would just, you know, go get a plastic uh, grocery bag full of uh, pebble ice and I'd be in like tiki heaven. <laughs> Or the other thing you could do is when you're shaving, when you're cutting down, if you have a big block, save all those shards. Yeah, those are great for shaking. So yeah, ice can be its own episode. You know, sure. it's 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 definitely a rabbit hole. Yeah, it, and it all, and you know what? We maybe we we ought to make it one in the future. So should we move on to actual spirits? Sure. Sure. So what are some of the bottles you think people should keep stocked on their shelves at various price points? Yeah. Um, there's so much out there, and I think it might be a little obnoxious to say you have to drink an old-fashioned or you have to drink a Negroni or whatever. If you don't like that, don't drink it. Start with what you do know that you like or what you think you might be interested in. Just do a little reading and find out what the brands are that are respected. Um, would have said, you know, back when we could go to bars, go to the great bars and look at the back bar and see you know, see what they pull out of the well and see what they pull from the back bar and what they use those two different kinds of spirits for. So I I don't know if there's a a really concise short answer about, I'm going to give you a list of, you know, five or six bottles that you should buy. But, you know, I would say at a bare minimum, you're going to want a good bourbon, 
a good gin. Rye whiskey. Rye whiskey. You know, it's, I think it's still a challenge for some people because it's, it's such a big flavor, but uh, it's crucial for some of these, you know, classic cocktails. A Manhattan with bourbon, I'm sorry, is just not the same as a Manhattan with rye. Throwing down the gauntlet. Yeah. And then, and then rum is a whole other, like, intense, complicated discussion that uh, I think a lot of people in the world, in the, in the spirits world right now, maybe more than any other spirit, are trying to get their heads around rum. Um, a part of it is because its, it's history is so closely wrapped up in colonialism but also just because as a spirit it's it's so broad and it's made in so many places with so many different techniques i mean say yeah saying rum as a category is the equivalent of saying automobiles you know to use another car metaphor yeah. it's it's yeah. it's that varied as opposed to you know even whiskeys and agave spirits you know i would venture to say that they don't swing from one end of the of the flavor spectrum to the other, the way rum does. Yeah, and I would say you know coming up um, in the eighties when I was doing my first sipping, there were three kinds of rum. There was light rum, gold rum, and dark rum, and that was you know Bacardi, Myers, and you know whatever the fuck the the gold rum was because it had the caramel color in it. <laughs> you know, it just it it wasn't nuanced the way it is now. It it wasn't appreciated or understood the way that it is now. Yeah, and to piggyback off of Dave's point about um, you know recommended bottles, it's it's really hard to to get into recommending brands because there's so many that are worthwhile within each price point. And like Dave said, there's nothing you know, no, there's really no substitute for for going and just trying stuff out yourself. What I can say is a good starting point is to start with the drinks that you actually are interested in drinking or already enjoy drinking. Start with that and then go seek it out. So if you're not into Negronis, then don't bother with with buying Campari. You're not going to need it. You know, uh, Campari is essential for my bar because I love Negronis. I love Americanos and so on. But if it's a, if you don't drink old fashions, then don't bother with whiskey. I do in the book. I do recommend specific brands. Um, but I, you know, I'm also giving people a range of recipes and saying, you know, pick whatever you like and run with it. But here's here's the information you need you know, across the board. So I'm not sure why that's why I feel like that's a different conversation than the, the one that we're having. But um, if people are interested in bourbon, you know, this is a tough one because everybody loves, you know, what they, what they love. Um, but for an 80 proof bourbon, I love Buffalo trace mm-hmm. for, for like a, a proofier bourbon. I'm going to go with either wild Turkey one one or old granddad bonded. Excellent. Both. Um, and these are, you know, at, at least as far as like Wild Turkey and Old Granddad, they're humble brands in terms of how they position themselves in the world and their their honesty. They're not trying to tell some bullshit story about, you know, the, the frontier and, you know, the old. <laughs> so, um, you know, honesty and uh, transparency goes a long way. That's what we're all about on this show. That's It's, it's the yeah. reason why we started this podcast. Speaking of, of recipes and the drinks you like, what are uh, maybe like two or three of your favorite recipes that are that are just like difficult to mess mm. up? Difficult to mess up. So, so like, you know, something that somebody could make and, you know, not fuck up. Yeah, basically. You know, the easiest one, honestly, is it's also a flavor challenge. So I don't know if I would include this as an entry level drink, but the Negroni. I would agree with that. 
you know, it's equal parts. You put, you put it in a glass with some ice, you give it a stir and it's good to go. I, I went into a, a sports bar one time uh, down in, in the gas lamp in San Diego. And I was like a half hour early to meet a friend uh, down at um, Noble Experiment. So I went into this bar and said, hey, man, can I get a Negroni? And the bartender's like, what the fuck is that? And I said, well, you, know, you see that red bottle down there, the Campari? He goes, yeah. And I said, okay, see that vermouth over there, the, you know, the martini, the dark, the red one? Yeah. See that bottle of Tanqueray? Yeah. I said, just equal parts, put them in a glass, one ounce of each, orange wheel. He's like, oh, okay. Tasted fine. And he nailed it. It was perfect. Or the other way this story could go is, hey, boys and girls, here's a, another tip. In case you're not drinking at home, no time and place. And if you're at a sports bar, order a beer. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. No, yeah, that's a big important part of it. Read the room, kind of know what's going on. But, you know, I see a bottle of Campari. I see a bottle of vermouth. It's actually in the fridge. And I'm like, hmm. Oh, the vermouth was in the fridge. There's, uh, there's, there's still hope. <laughs> oh, but yeah, read the room. Uh, you know, more often than not, if I I can look at the back bar and I can kind of look at the tools the bartender's using or maybe, you know, how they shake before they get to me and ask me what I want, then I'm just getting a shot of wild turkey and a, and a beer. And the Negroni is a drink that you actually can go completely without any bar tools. If you're making it just for yourself, you can build it in the glass. You don't need a mixing glass, although it's nicer uh, if yeah. you have one, but if you don't have one, you can build it right in the glass. You can stir it with your yeah. finger if you have. If you're so destitute yeah. that you have no <laughs> nothing but your finger yeah. and these three bo- bottles, these three fancy bougie bottles of liquor, but you have nothing right. else. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and the thing about Campari is, I I just didn't know how to drink it, and I had a bottle of Campari in my home bar because I had heard about like a Campari and soda. I was like, oh, okay, yeah, wow, that sounds really nice. It's bright red. It's got to taste awesome. It took me like five years to get my head around Campari, and I don't think it was until I had a Negroni that the light bulb went off, and I understood, oh, it's bitter orange. Got it. Yeah, exactly. We've actually got some some questions from listeners that I think we'd like to pose for you, Dave. Sure. So first question this is from Ab from Culver City, and he would like some general tips and best practices on infusing spirits, especially when to know how long is long enough. First tip, infusing spirits, um, higher proof is going to do a better job at extracting flavors than 80 proof. So, um, you know, get that, that high ABV if you can, depending on what kind of spirit you're trying to infuse. Understand that things like um, fruits are going to infuse slower than things like spices. So if you're doing like a spiced rum or a a rock and rye, you're going to want to put the fruit in first, let it sit for a little bit at room temperature, and then add your spices. Sugar will dissolve directly into um, spirits if you need it to. Uh, It doesn't hurt to run it through a blender to blitz it and make it super fine. It'll dissolve a little faster, but um, you don't need to make a syrup out of it or, you know, anything weird like that. And then, you know, I guess, you know, to step back from that, the bigger thing is just to understand flavors and what kind of flavors are inherent in the spirit. And if you want to either amplify them or complement them with whatever you're sticking in there to make something else, um, just have a basic understanding of flavors that go together well. 
And to add to that, I'd say, you know, as far as how long to infuse something for, you know, nothing really beats the taste test. Just taste something uh, depending on what it is. I mean, if you're talking about dried herbs, I would say you'd be hard pressed to even let it sit for half an hour, let alone. An hour. I mean, right. it's like a tea, right? So, right. you know, taste every few minutes. If you see that like color is changing pretty fast, give it a taste, see if you like it. Um, you know, and know that if you leave something for a longer period of time than than you than you ought to, depending on what it is, if it's like a dried herb, you might start giving off more bitter and tannic components and flavors. Um, or if you end up leaving something like a spice in, like a like a uh, a chili spice in there for too long, then you're going to have over extraction to be too spicy. So the, there's really no substitute for an initial taste test until you've got it figured out. You're like, okay, I like to do my my cucumbers and my gin, and you know how long to do it from tasting it. You'll figure that out. And if you're using fresh herbs and things like that, especially green items, you know, green herbs. Uh, or green vegetables, things like that. Know that, like, you might end up when you over extract, you'll get too much of that green flavor sometimes, and and you end up you lose that vibrant fresh flavor, and it'll move into more of like a stale kind of mustier flavor. But ultimately, the taste test is really what's gonna what's gonna um, determine you know where the sweet spot is for you. And I think it might be useful if you have a specific goal in mind with uh, an infused spirit and a place you want to get to to pour some of that spirit into separate containers and infuse your ingredients one at a time. Like if you really want to get crazy about this and then just taste each one, take notes, figure out, okay, the clove only needs a day. Um, the cinnamon is great at three days, you know, whatever, you know, kind of, you can come up with your own recipe that way. I actually have a question that, that I think will be useful for people to know on, on the topic of bitters. A lot of home bartenders, when they first get into it, they see all the wide array of bitters available on the market and end up going overboard and just buying so many of these well-marketed bitters that look like amazing flavors, but don't know what to do with it. What is your take on bitters, in, including you know people who want to make bitters at home and all that stuff? I have a very particular kind of old school attitude about it, but I'm curious what your thought is. As far as making it at home goes, like homemade ketchup can be, it can be kind of cool, I guess, but you know, Heinz, these are the people who've been figuring it out for a long time. It's good. I was actually for the book, I was considering doing a, a cola syrup because I, I have some recipes for making different kinds of homemade sodas. And I was thinking about doing a cola syrup and Fuck, it's so complicated and so, like, over the top, way, way, way over the line. I don't know. I kind of see, I, I kind of see bitters in, in that same way. There's so many great companies and, and great people who are at the top of their game, and it's not that big a deal to buy a bottle of their bitters. So don't do it at home unless you are, like, you know, a budding alchemist or whatever, and you, you know, want to start you know, talking to the moon. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, I'm um, I'm in agreement with you on that. I mean, you know, Heinz ketchup, sriracha, um, Coca-Cola, Angus, Angostura bitters. Right. Make it at home if you're a glutton for punishment and if you like to have a product that in the end, after all your hard work, is going to be far inferior to what's available on the market. Are you, are you, are you saying to put those together in a glass? Uh, yeah, mixology. The hashtag mixology, mm. yeah. <laughs> Leon from Beverly Hills has a couple of questions for you. 
He says, I'm trying to figure out the right glass and amount of soda or tonic for a gin and tonic or gin and soda. I never get the amount of soda just right. That's the first question. Second question is, what would be some non-alcoholic companion drinks for kids? They like the process of pouring, mixing, muddling, etc. Okay. Yeah, I, I've seen two different specs for highball drinks like gin and tonic or vodka soda. Um, some people do two ounces of spirit with three ounces mm-hmm. of lengthener. Some people do four ounces of lengthener, but I, I've kind of settled on the three ounce. The glass ideally is what they call a highball glass. It's uh, shorter than like your, your tumbler that you're most likely going to have at home for water or iced tea or whatever. Um, you, you may have to look around to find them, but I would just say, don't worry about filling up the glass and making the drink, you know, fit the glass understand the proportions of the drink and do your two ounces of spirit, your three ounces of lengthener and your ice. And if the glass is only half full, oh, well. At least it's not half empty. (laughs) At least it's not half empty. (laughs) A lot of the glassware that people buy for their homes, they're oversized and they don't know it. It's because it's what's sold to them. It's more difficult to find the proper size glassware that it's intended for these types of drinks. Um, I think Cocktail Kingdom is one of them. Highball or Collins, we use those that phrase pretty much interchangeably. Their highball glasses are about 12 ounces. And I think 10 to 12 ounces is really where you want to be. Most of the highball or Collins type of tall glassware that people have at home are in the like 14 plus 16 ounce range. The ones I have at home are 16 ounces. They're meant to drink big glasses of water in. You start off with that, with that size, 10 to 12 ounces is where you need to be. I agree with the the ratios that you mentioned, really, it's a matter of, I think, suiting it to your taste. I'd say one and a half ounce to two ounces of spirit to about three ounces to four ounces of your soda or tonic. You know, it depends. Some tonics are a little sweeter. Some, you know, depends if you're using a Navy strength gin, that's a little bit more potent. But within that range, I think with highballs, you you don't have to be, I think, so exacting the way you do in a cocktail that has more than two ingredients. I think you can really suit it to your taste. But if you factor that in, you get, let's say you got two ounces of spirit, three ounces of mixer, that's five ounces, leaving another two ounce gap at the top of the glass because you don't want to fill it to the brim. Now you're at seven ounces and that remainder of displacement of five ounces will be from your ice. And that's how you get a drink that tastes right, is the right balance, and it looks like the liquid is to the right amount. So on to the second question, some non-alcoholic companion drinks for kids. What do you think? Kid stuff. A real Shirley Temple, the way they used to make it back in the day, is is wonderful. And it's gonna it's gonna teach um teach your kids something kind of fun and like what goes into a drink. Uh if you make your own grenadine with equal parts of the palm, hundred percent pomegranate juice, the unsweetened, you know, not blended with grape or whatever, but just pomegranate juice, hundred percent, equal parts of that and white sugar. Stir it together over low heat until the the sugar melts. That's a that's a basic grenadine. You can get fancy with it and drop in things like orange flower water. And and some people like the darkness of pomegranate molasses. But you know, make make your own homemade grenadine. Uh, from there, you can either use a ginger soda that's commercial, or you can go to the next step and make a ginger syrup. And then, you know, use seltzer or whatever to make your own ginger soda at home that's spicy and has something to it. And ginger soda with a little bit of grenadine in it. There's your Shirley Temple. There it is. My thoughts on that, I think actually uh, what I would do if I was in Leon's position is I would teach my kids how to make 
a a a mojito, a non-alcoholic mojito, which is essentially a mint limeade. And in the process of learning how to make that, they also learn how to make one for you. And all they do is substitute rum <laughs> with water. Right. We got another question. Steve from Baja California has several questions about glassware. Why does the shape of glass matter for drinks, both straight and mixed? Is it just for looks, tradition, or is it more about flavor and how you experience certain aspects of a drink? Also, if you were picking just a couple of types of glassware, what would you choose to best experience the most drinks? I'd guess old-fashioned glasses work for a lot of the stuff. What else would you pros recommend for a small home bar? Yeah. There is a tradition behind the, the shapes of the glasses, but they serve a purpose. They're, they're shaped that way for a reason because they work for a certain kind of drink. The rocks glass, the old-fashioned glass that you're talking about, is, um, is short. It has a, a wide opening at the top, and it has a, a really dense, thick bottom that helps insulate the drink and helps kind of keep the temperature in stasis so that ice doesn't melt too quickly and you can enjoy the drink longer and take your time sipping it. So those are typically spirit-forward drinks that benefit from dilution and become a journey from the, that first super hot sip that's a, a punch in the face to the that very gentle whisper in the rearview mirror at the at the end of the drink. The the next one is the, the Collins, the kind of tall shape, um, cylindrical shape drink has a small mouth. It helps preserve bubbles so they don't escape too quickly. You're going to put ice cubes in there and the drink will stay fizzy for a while. If it was a, a wider opening, your bubbles are going to go flying out. And then the coupe is is kind of come into vogue instead of the old uh, V-shaped martini glass, thankfully, because the uh, the problem with that martini glass is the liquid tends to flow right out over the top. Um, there's nothing to hold it in. The coupe is slightly rounded at the top. So when a drink is splashing up and coming up to the edge, it does a little loop and it, it goes back in and it, it does a better job of staying in the glass. Those are typically chilled. You keep those in the in the freezer if you can, or you you know chill it with crushed ice before you put the drink in it. And um, you know that's just meant to be a quick drink. It because it doesn't have ice in it, you're not supposed to linger with those drinks. It's not supposed to get warm on you and hang out for a half hour. You want to drink it in like you know three or four sips. As they say in the Savoy cocktail book, as Harry Craddock says, you want to drink these while they're still laughing while at you. While still laughing at you, exactly. And um, I do tend to, to um, if I can, I buy glasses either directly from Libby. Uh, they are the, the company that makes most of the you know bar and restaurant everyday glassware that is durable and it's all kind of standard sizes. And they make all of these oddball glasses. Uh, the other cool place to look is at thrift stores and vintage shops and yard sales. And there's always someone's, you know, grandma who had a, you know, had their whiskey at five in the afternoon and, you know, now their glasses are out there for the world. You mentioned to have the Collins, the old fashioned and the cocktail glass. Those are, that's a good starting, but even if you want to go a little bit more basic than that, you know, and this answer I think applies to almost everything else we've covered, which is start with the drinks that you and your people like to drink. You know, your guests, your, you know, your, your roommate, your wife, your, your girlfriend, boyfriend, whatever. Think about what you guys like to drink and buy accordingly. Start with that. You know, don't buy a cocktail glass if you never, ever drink Manhattans or daiquiris. If you're, if you're old fashions and Negronis all day and you like 
drinks on the rocks or you just sip whiskey, then just buy what you need. That's that's I think really the the first question to ask anybody who's trying to build their home bar. Yeah, drink what you like. And I think the last question we got is from uh, Calvin from the east side of Long Beach wants to know which gin is best for a gin and juice. Yeah. No, just playing. A beef eater would be lovely. Yeah, beef eater. So OJ, and I think you need a splash of lemon or lime juice. You need some sharp acid. OJ never works on its own. You always need some lemon. No, OJ needs the AC cowlings. Right. <laughs> can't, can't do the do the dirt on your own. Bad bad dad jokes all around. Speaking of bad uh, bad fathers, what are you drinking to celebrate? Or let, let me re, let me rephrase that. <laughs> Speaking of bad fathers, we have an election coming up. So I'm curious, what are you drinking to celebrate in case Trump loses? And what are you drowning your sorrows in in the event that he wins? I want to tell you about 2016 and and what our experience was here watching the election. So um, Kristen and I were. Um, you know, made ourselves a nice little dinner. And then we come upstairs to where the TV is. And we're like, let's celebrate our first female president. Let's have an old fashioned, right? So we have a wild turkey 101, old fashioned. And then um, we're starting to watch the results come in. And we're like, oh, geez, you know, um, you want another one? Yeah. Yeah. I think we should have another one. And then the results keep coming in. And, you know, that bottle was right there and we just, we finished the bottle. (laughs) And at one point, I don't know what state they had called, but the bottle was empty and I just, I just hucked it and it bounced down the stairs. (laughs) Yeah. I think the one-on-one is the right way to go for a night like that. Dave, we really appreciate you coming on the show, helped enlighten us as well as our listeners. Uh, We like to finish the show by asking the guests about a song selection of theirs that most uh, represents the the topic at hand. So, you know, what song would you say most kind of sums up uh, your experience of uh, home bartending and drinking during this pandemic? Yeah, so there's this song I've been thinking of a lot lately and listening to a lot lately called Faith by Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers. This was a mid-60s jazz jam. I don't think it has as much to do with like spiritual faith as it has to do with just the personal belief that we're going to get through this and get to the other side. And you just got to believe that we can figure all this shit out, that we're capable of it. It's this kind of ridiculous bouncy tune for these ridiculous times. And we're all in the same boat together, getting dragged along. Dave, thanks for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure. Stay safe out there and give our love to your to your family. Thank you. I will. And thanks so much for having me on. It's been a blast. Uh, hope we could do it in person at some point. But y'all hang in there. 